So we're entering this season of, of Pentecost, and like so many of the other liturgical seasons of the year, this is, this is the first for all of us. Um, Pentecost is a Sunday that we sort of kind of went over and acknowledged, but I didn't really understand it. Pentecost is the birth of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit to man. Like, it's probably something we should pay attention to. Maybe something we should should honor. And so Pentecost Sunday is, is a couple of weeks from now, and so the liturgical calendar gets us spending a couple of weeks discussing the Holy Spirit. And so, um, so this scripture today about the one that leads us into all truth, I started researching this and started studying this and it, I'm asking myself, okay, how do you tell the truth about the one that leads into all truth? How would I know how to talk about the Holy Spirit, right? Other than from personal experience, how do we even begin to discuss this? And so I'm, 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 I'm going into the original languages and I'm going to commentaries and I kept referring back to this one place in the Anglican Church. And those of you who, were, who, who, who participated in kind of the, the couple of months that we spent going through why we do what we do, we referred to this book of homilies. We, we affirmed the book of homilies in the 39 articles. And we talked about it a little bit, but I actually went to the book of homilies because there was this discussion of the Holy Spirit. And I kept referring back to it over and over again until I finally felt like, okay, what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is something that I do all the time and something that I've never done before. We're going to do two parts on the Holy Spirit only we're going to use the homilies. So what I do all the time is read. I read every day. What I have never done before is read a homily in church. And yet I I read this homily and shut my book and my notes and said, there's no way I can do better than this. It's not possible. So I spent a whole day trying to look up strange English obscure words that are no longer used, try to find out what they mean, and, and bring this really old English into something that nods to the old English but still is something we can understand. And we're going to do an ancient two-part series, ironically. This homily dates back to the 1530s. And um, I encourage as you listen to it that you see what your brothers and sisters were thinking at the time, but that you also see how much of what they were thinking formed what we think now. Because this is an original Protestant Reformation document on the Holy Spirit. 
called An Homily Concerning the Coming Down of the Holy Ghost and the Manifold Gifts of the Same for Whit Sunday, which is Pentecost. Now, we just watched this song, and incidentally, this is Even Song Rising. So, this is our sister church across the mountain in Chattanooga. That's them. And um, I remember when we worked on that song, Chris really wanted us to write this song about the ghost of God. That's the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool, dude, but we got to say Holy Ghost at least. Now that I've researched this some more, this is actually more true to what Scripture was saying in the first place. We've gotten used to Holy Spirit, but Holy Ghost is actually true. In their time, both scripturally and in the Protestant Reformation time, that's how they considered the Holy Ghost. There were evil spirits. There's the Holy Spirit, right? There are evil ghosts that scare you, demonic things. Then there's the Holy Ghost. And literally a Christian is inviting the Holy Ghost to live inside of you. So you are literally saying, take control of me, possess me. And that's how they would have understood it. And that's how they did understand it. So um, what we're going to do is essentially in two weeks go through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So here we go. Before we declare the great and manifold gifts of the Holy Ghost, which the Church of God has been constantly replenished by, we must first briefly expound upon where this Feast of Pentecost, or Whitsuntide, had its beginning. The Feast of Pentecost was always kept the 50th day after Easter, a great and solemn feast among the Jews, wherein they did celebrate the memorial of their deliverance out of Egypt, and also the memorial of the publishing of the law which was given to them on Mount Sinai upon that day. It was first ordained and commanded to be kept holy, not by any mortal man, but by the mouth of the Lord himself, as we read in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. The place appointed for the observation was Jerusalem, where there were a great multitude of diverse people from all parts of the world, as is affirmed in the second chapter of Acts, where mention is made of Parthians, Medes, Elamites, inhabitants of Mesopotamia, inhabitants of Luri, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and diverse other such places we can clearly gather what a great and royal solemnity was commonly used in that feast. Now, as this was given in commandment to the Jews in the old law, according to 1 Corinthians 10, so did our Savior, Christ, confirm the same in the time of the gospel, ordaining after a sort a new Pentecost for his disciples when he sent down the Holy Ghost visibly in form of cloven tongues like fire and gave them power to speak in such sort that everyone might hear them 
and also understand them in his own language. Because this is such an amazing miracle in and of itself, the church thought it good to solemnize and keep holy this day, commonly called Whit Sunday. And here it is to be noted that as the law was given to the Jews on Mount Sinai, the 50th day after Easter, so was the preaching of the gospel through the mighty power of the Holy Ghost given to the apostles on Mount Zion the 50th day after Easter. And this day is to be called Pentecost. For as St. Luke writes in the Acts of the Apostles, when 50 days were come to an end, the disciples being all together with one accord in one place, the Holy Ghost came suddenly among them and sat upon each of them like as it had been cloven tongues of fire. This was undoubtedly done to teach the apostles and all other men that it is he, the Holy Spirit, which gives eloquence and utterance in preaching the gospel, that it is he which opened the mouth to declare the mighty works of God, that it is he which engenders a burning zeal towards God's word and gives all men a tongue, even a fiery tongue, so that they may boldly and cheerfully profess the truth in the face of the whole world as Isaiah was endued with this spirit. The Lord, said Isaiah, gave me a learned and skillful tongue so that I might know to raise them up that are fallen with the word. Isaiah 54. The prophet David pleaded to have this gift, saying, Open you my lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Psalm 51, 15. For our Savior Christ, also in the gospel, said to his disciples, It is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which is within you. Matthew 10, 20. All testimonies of Holy Scripture do sufficiently declare that the mystery in the tongues is a result of the preaching of the gospel and the open confession of the Christian faith and those that are possessed with the Holy Ghost. So that if any man be a weak Christian, not professing his faith openly, but cloaking and coloring himself for fear of danger in times to come, he gives men occasion justly and with good conscience to doubt that he has the grace of the Holy Ghost within him because he is tongue-tied and doesn't speak. Now, you've heard the first institution of this Feast of Pentecost or Whitsuntide as well as the Old Law among the Jews as also in the time of the Gospel among the Christians. Now, let us Consider what the Holy Ghost is and how he works his miraculous works toward mankind. 
The Holy Ghost is a spiritual and divine substance. The third person in the deity, distinct from the Father and the Son, and yet proceeding from them both. This being true, both the Creed of Athanasius bears witness and it's proven by the plain testimonies of God's holy word. When Christ was baptized of John in the river, we read that the Holy Ghost came down in the form of a dove and that the Father thundered from heaven saying, This is my dear and well-beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew three seventeen. Therefore, we note three diverse and distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, which are not three gods, but one God. Likewise, when Christ first instituted and ordained the sacrament of baptism, he sent his disciples into the whole world, willing them to baptize all nations. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. And in another place he said, I will pray unto my Father, and he shall give you another comforter. John fourteen sixteen. Again, when the Comforter shall come, whom I will send from my Father. John fifteen twenty six. These and such other places of the New Testament plainly and evidently confirm the distinction of the Holy Ghost from the other persons in the Trinity that no man can doubt it unless he will blaspheme the everlasting truth of God's word. As for his proper nature and substance, it is altogether one with God the Father and God the Son, that is to say, spiritual, eternal, uncreated, incomprehensible, almighty, To be clear, he is God, the Lord everlasting. Therefore, he is called the Spirit of the Father. Therefore, he is said to proceed from the Father and the Son. And therefore, he was equally joined with them in the commission that the apostles had to baptize all nations. But this may appear more sensibly to the eyes of all men. It is important to come to the wonderful and heavenly works of the Holy Ghost, which plainly declare to the world his mighty and divine power. First, it is evident that he wonderfully governed and directed the patriarchs the prophets in old time, illuminating their minds with the knowledge of the true Messiah and giving them utterance to prophesy of things that should come to pass. For as St. Peter witnessed, the prophecy came not in old time, 
by the will of man. But the holy men of God spoke as they were moved inwardly by the Holy Ghost. Second Peter 1.21 And of Zechariah the high priest, it is said in the gospel that he being full of the Holy Ghost prophesied and praised God. Luke 1.67 So also did Simeon, Anna, Mary, and many others to the great wonder and admiration of all men. Moreover, was not the Holy Ghost a mighty worker in the conception and the nativity of Christ, our Savior? St. Matthew said that the Blessed Virgin was found with child of the Holy Ghost before Joseph and she came together, Matthew 1.18. And the angel Gabriel did expressly tell her that it should come to pass, saying, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee, Luke 1.35. It was a magnificent matter that a woman should conceive and bear a child without the knowledge of a man. But where the Holy Ghost works, there nothing is impossible. Further proof of this is the inward regeneration and sanctification of mankind. When Christ said to Nicodemus, unless a man be born anew of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, he was greatly amazed in his mind and began to reason with Christ, demanding how a man might be born which is old. Can he enter into his mother's womb again and so be born anew? John 3, 4 through 6. This is the natural way to view this. He had little or no intelligence of the Holy Ghost, and therefore he went immediately to the function of it and asked how this thing were possible to be true. Whereas if he had known the great power of the Holy Ghost on his behalf, that it is he which inwardly works the regeneration and new birth of mankind, he would never have questioned Christ's words, but would rather take occasion to praise and glorify God. For as there are three persons in the deity, so have they three offices proper unto each of them. The Father to create, the Son to redeem, the Holy Ghost to sanctify and regenerate. Whereof the last, it is hid from our understanding the more it ought to move all men to wonder at the secret and mighty working of God's Holy Spirit, which is within us. For it is the Holy Ghost and no other thing that quickens the minds of men, stirring up good and godly motions in their hearts, which are agreeable to the will and commandment of God, such as Otherwise, of their own crooked and perverse nature, they should never have. That which is born of the Spirit 
is spirit. John 3, 6. As if to say, man of his own nature is fleshly and carnal, corrupt and not, sinful and disobedient to God, without any spark of goodness in him, without any virtuous or godly motion, only given to evil and wicked deeds. As for the works of the Spirit, the fruits of faith, charitable and godly motions, if he have any at all in him, they proceed only of the Holy Ghost, who is the only worker of our sanctification and makes us new men in Christ Jesus. Did not God's Holy Spirit miraculously work in the child David when as a poor shepherd he became a princely prophet for Samuel 17:12? Did not God's Holy Spirit miraculously work in Matthew sitting at the tax collector's bench as a proud tax collector? He became a humble and lowly evangelist. Matthew 9, 9. And who can be anything but amazed to consider that Peter should be transformed from a lowly fisherman to a chief and mighty apostle? Paul was a brutal and bloody persecutor and became a faithful disciple of Christ to reach the Gentiles. Such is the power of the Holy Ghost to regenerate men and as it were to make them completely new so that they are nothing like the men that they were before. The Holy Spirit doesn't just randomly choose to do this transformative work. He changes those within whose hearts he dwells. Know you not, said St. Paul, that you are the temple of God and that his spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know you not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost which is within you? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Again, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, Romans 8, 9. Why? The spirit of God dwells in you. This agrees with the doctrine of St. John, writing wisely on this. The anointing which you have received, he meant the Holy Ghost, dwells in you, 1 John two twenty seven. And the doctrine of Peter says the same. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 1 Peter 4, 14. What a comfort this is to the heart of a true Christian. To think that the Holy Ghost dwells within him. If God be with us, as the apostle says, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31. But how shall I know that the Holy Ghost is within me, some might say. As the tree is known by its fruit, 
so is also the Holy Ghost. The fruits of the Holy Ghost, according to the mind of St. Paul, are these. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and temperance. In contrast to this, the deeds of the flesh are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, wantonness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, contrariness, emulation, wrath, contention, sedition, heresy, envy, murder, drunkenness, gluttony, and such like. Galatians 5, 19 through 23. These two contrasts are the spectacles wherein you must behold yourself and discern whether you have the Holy Ghost within you or the spirit of the flesh. If you see that your works are virtuous and good, adhering to the prescript rule of God's word, savoring and tasting not of the flesh but of the spirit, then assure yourself that you are endued with the Holy Ghost. Otherwise, in thinking well of yourself, you are simply deceived. The Holy Ghost always declares himself by his fruitful and gracious gifts, namely, by the word of wisdom, by the word of knowledge, which is the understanding of the scriptures, by faith, in doing of miracles, by healing them that are diseased, by prophecy, which is the declaration of God's mysteries, by discerning of spirits, diversities of tongues, interpretation of tongues, and so forth. All these gifts proceed from one spirit and are given to man as the Holy Spirit measures. They bring men into a wonderful admiration of God's divine power. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. We should all be astonished at that which is written in the Acts of the Apostles to hear their bold confession before the council at Jerusalem and to consider that they went away with joy and gladness, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer rebukes and wounds for the name and faith of Christ Jesus. Acts 5, 29 and 41. This was the mighty work of the Holy Ghost, because he gives patience and joyfulness of heart in temptation and affliction. He is rightly named in Scripture to be called a comforter. Who will not also be astonished to read the learned and heavenly sermons of Peter and the disciples considering that they were never brought up in schools of learning but were called directly from their nets to become apostles? This was obviously 
the work of the Holy Ghost because he instructs the hearts of the simple in the true knowledge of God and his word. This is why he is rightly called the spirit of truth. John 14, 17. Eusebius in his ecclesiastical histories tells a strange story of a certain learned and subtle philosopher who being an extreme adversary to Christ and his doctrine could by no kind of learning be converted to the faith but was able to withstand all the arguments that could be brought against him with little or no labor. Eusebius, Ecclesiastical History, Book 11, Chapter 3. A while later, there came a poor, simple man of small wit and lesser knowledge, one that was reputed among the learned as an idiot. And he, on God's name, would attempt to argue with this proud philosopher The bishops and other learned men standing by were embarrassed at the matter, thinking that he should shame them all. But he went on, and beginning in the name of the Lord Jesus, brought the philosopher to such point in the end, contrary to all men's expectations, that he could do nothing but acknowledge the power of God in the man's words and to give place to the truth. This was a miraculous work that one small soul of no learning should accomplish what many bishops of great knowledge and understanding were never able to bring pass. So true is the saying of Bede, where the Holy Ghost doth instruct and teach, there is no delay at all in learning. Much more could be spoken of the manifold gifts and graces of the Holy Ghost, most excellent and wonderful in our eyes. But to make a long discourse through all, the shortness of time will not serve. And since we've heard the greatest examples, you may easily conceive and judge of the rest. Now, were it expedient to discuss this question, whether everyone who claims or boasts and brags that they have the Holy Ghost really does. This is a worthy thing to discuss. And, God willing, we will in the next part of this homily. In the meantime, let us, as we are most bound, give hearty thanks to God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, for sending down his comforter into the world, humbly asking him to work in our hearts by the power of this Holy Spirit, that we, being regenerate and newly born again in all goodness, righteousness, sobriety, and truth, may in the end be made partakers of everlasting life in his heavenly kingdom, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, homily's over. Now it's me again. That's a large...
cup of Coke to drink. I suggest, if you have the time, to go get this podcast and listen to it again. Because basically what you just got was like a seminary lecture on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But we've been going through the Gospel of Luke this year and trying to very intentionally look at who Jesus is systematically. There's all kinds of life application in that. And we do all kinds of life application discussions. But sometimes there are theological things that you need to dig into because you're living this life, right, with the communication with the Holy Spirit. And you may theologically not have a clue where you stand. And sometimes it's important on things like the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or the doctrine of the sacraments, baptism and communion, to have some sort of theological framework to go, okay, now I understand why I believe that. We just always did. I never questioned it. Now I understand. The Holy Spirit is one such thing. So as I was trying to figure out how to life applicate this, bring us into the all truth, which is something that I pray every day, I realized there's no way for us to have a context for that without some kind of framework for who and what the Holy Spirit is and why and what he does in the world. So I feel like uh, reading the homily, what I need more than anything is a lecture, right? You know those things where you climb up the stairs and you look down over everybody and you talk in this deep English voice that I don't have. Um, So... If you can go back and re-listen, writing down those scriptures, I think you'll, if, if you are so inclined to truly dig deeper into what the Holy Spirit's works are in this world, you'll find this to be quite rich.